0: hey everyone and happy sunday to you hopefully you're enjoying the weather that makes us all oregonians stick around for the rest of the year it's amazing out there and uh, hopefully you've been able to get outside and enjoy it um we are in our house of acts series and uh we have a pretty good chunk of the story to get to um so turn with me if you will in your bible flip in your bible click in your bible to acts chapter 12. that's where we're going to be and we're really going to cover all of Acts 12, now it is narrative, so buckle up for story time and uh, and let's read this together. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up, and said, quick, get up. The chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that the angel was doing what was really happening. He thought he was simply seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and he said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it just must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Now, this is interesting because this next story is included with this. Then, verse 19, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish." This is just an incredible story. There's a supernatural escape from jail. There's, is it is it Peter or is it his angel? In another translation, is it Peter's ghost? There's this megalomaniac. There's flesh-eating worms and an angel who seems pretty active doing multiple different things. This story is just flat out wild. And I think it's super brilliant how the author, Luke, uh, put these two stories intertwined and in next to one another. Because think about it this way. There's two men. Herod and Peter, both are Jewish, both have very different ways of living and relating to God. And then there's one angel who has very different ways of relating to both Peter And Herod. Now, a little bit more on that later. Uh, If you've read one of the four historical accounts of the life of Jesus, then you're probably pretty familiar with the person Peter. He sometimes goes by Cephas. He's known as one of the main characters in the life of Jesus. Uh, He's certainly one of the most relatable disciples. Most people find themselves going, Oh, I can understand why Peter said that, why he did that. I would have done the same thing. But who's this Herod guy? Who's Herod? And could Herod's background give us any clues into why what happened to him here actually ends up happening to him. So here's a photo of Herod. Uh, It looks like it's from some kind of coin. Uh, That's his his face or his profile. Uh, Herod was a king of Judea um, from 41 to 44 AD. So this is about 10 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now, what is fascinating is that even though he was Jewish, He was actually trained in Rome by Tiberius, the Roman emperor himself. So he's being mentored from a very young age. He's being discipled into a ruler. You can imagine Tiberius has high hopes for this young protege of his. But Herod grows up and he is so recklessly extravagant, he became so deeply in debt that he had to end up escaping, fleeing Rome, just to get away from his debtors. So he leaves Rome and he flees to this fortress in Jordan, just outside of Israel. He's an obvious disappointment to Tiberius, who had these high hopes for him to one day maybe even take over the entire Roman Empire. Now, he gets so low here, he's out of money, he's out of favor, he's a letdown to the Romans and the most important Roman of all, Um, that he actually contemplates suicide. He considers killing himself, ending it all. So so think about this. Here's this person, Herod. He's never really been truly a Roman because he's half Jewish. He's lived this extravagant lifestyle to try to compensate for his lack. It's led him into this deep debt He had to leave Rome because of it. He goes to some podunk town in Jordan, a far, far cry from the metropolitan glories of Rome. He gets so depressed, so sad, that he contemplates ending it all. Now, things take a wild turn in his life. Here's what happens next. Herod ends up going to prison for espionage against Rome. He teams up with Syria, and he spies on Rome for Syria, and he ends up in prison. Tiberius is fed up with him. You're going to prison for the rest of your life. But with the nature of cutthroat Roman politics, he finds himself on the right side of an assassination of Tiberius, his mentor. And the next emperor in line gives him dominion over Judea and Samaria as a thank you. Now, think about this. Herod clearly has insecurity, gambling, espionage, playing both sides, trying to get favor with both uh, groups of people, violence, he's a part of this assassination attempt, Um, all to get in to feel like he belongs with some people, to feel like he's a part of a family, really. He wasn't fully Jewish, he wasn't fully Roman, so he had to compensate in order to find a home for himself until this moment. Look down in your Bibles. Verse 1 says this again. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Why why is he doing that? That's interesting. Well, verse 2 says this. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword when he saw that this met this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Here's the clue. He sees what he did was met with approval, and he just does what he's always done to get approval. He does more of the same thing. So who, who, what controls Herod? Or, or maybe more pointedly, who controls Herod? People. What people thought about him. See, he's doing what he's always done. He's living on the opinions of others, and he exhibits this truth perfectly, that if you live for the praise of people, you will die when you don't get it. If you live your life according to the opinions of others, you will die when those opinions turn against you. And this is exactly what happens. Now, in the biblical account that we have here, he's simply giving some kind of royal address to the people. We don't um, really even know what is said, but we have another Jewish account. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus, he claims that Herod at this very same moment, in his historical account, he claims Herod stood, and he began to read from the book, Deuteronomy. And he gets to the part in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, verse 25, where it says, no foreigner shall reign among the people of Israel. Now, he's a foreigner. He's he's from Rome. And so Josephus, in his account, he says that Herod begins to get tears in his eyes. He doesn't belong there either. But the crowd assures him, no, 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 you're our brother, the voice of a God. So when the praise came, because he needed it so badly and he couldn't deny that he was God, (laughs) he struck down. It's a fascinating story, it's a really sad story. And I really never seen this in this passage. I just felt like these stories were so disconnected. Even when we put together that these were gonna be taught on the same day, I was thinking, how am I gonna connect these? Well, I don't think that it's random that Peter's story of escaping prison is put next to the story of Herod. There's this juxtaposition happening here. Really what we have here are two men and two responses from one angel, the angel of the Lord. I don't have time to go into who the angel of the Lord is and and the different kind of theologies around that, but what I want to show you is this. Peter's lack of the fear of man led him to have God help him. Peter doesn't fear what will happen to his body in this life, so God helps him. Herod's fear of man led him to have God oppose him. It's It's a real, you know, serious, to have God oppose you. Um, It's also interesting to consider this. Herod had found himself in prison at one time, right? Herod was one day, this is how the assassination attempt kind of unfolded. One day, Herod was overheard by his slave expressing a wish for Tiberius, the Roman emperor, his mentor. He He was overheard expressing a wish that Tiberius would be assassinated, that he would be killed, and for the advancement of Caligula. For this, he's cast into prison. But all of a sudden a stroke of luck occurs and following Tiberius' death, this assassination, um, Herod was set free through his advantageous connections with Caligula, his political friend. So it was Herod being on the right side of human power that got him free when his enemy, who he stabbed in the back, died. But don't you see, this is so crazy. It was his addiction to human power that was ultimately his demise. What released him from his prison, his political gamesmanship, his having the right connections was the very thing that led to his demise. His need for human power was the thing that he couldn't let go of. And it's the reason why God opposed him. See, whenever God breaks you out of a prison, you live on his favor and you never return to the same prison. But whenever you have to get out of a prison through your own cunning or your own will, you're going to have to keep that cunning to stay free, keep that will, keep that striving to remain alive. It's this very, very simple kingdom principle at play in these two stories. What you live on, you will die on. Or in the words of Jesus, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. You live by power, you will die by power. You live by approval, you will die when you don't get it. Really, this story shows us perfectly the difference between what the fear of God is and what the fear of man is and what they produce. Now, what is the fear of God? You've probably heard this phrase. It's a very, very common phrase all throughout the Psalms, Proverbs. What exactly is the fear of God? Well, um, Proverbs 1.7 says this, "'The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge.'" You've probably read this before. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And what's so interesting to me is that Herod and Peter, they actually share the same information, the same knowledge, if you will. They, they, they share the same religious background. They're both Jewish, but they do not share the same knowledge of God, right? They do not share the same relationship or the same fear of God. See, there's a knowledge that puffs up, a knowledge that leads to us getting this kind of uh, intoxicating feeling of power and godlikeness. That's Herod. It's, it's when you get that compliment, it's when you get that praise, and you just go, wow, there really is something special about me. But according to Titus chapter 1, there is a knowledge that also leads to godliness. What sort of knowledge is that? Well, it's the fear of God type knowledge. It's the knowing of who God is and who is not God and and what God is like. It's that kind of knowledge. And here is where Peter rests his entire life. He rested on who God is. So he's able to risk. Think about this. He's got a missional heart that leads him into dangerous situations. He's pressing on through trial and difficulty, through prayer. He's walking in step with the Lord's provision through obedience, even when it doesn't make sense. It's like, am I dreaming or is this real? Like crazy, crazy circumstances, right? All because he has made the fear of God primary in his life. He's got an insight and revelation into the heart of God, character of God. It's led him to trust God in very difficult circumstances. And then you have Herod who rests his entire life on his ability, impressing others, playing politics game, using debt to appear bigger than he is. So he isn't able to be free. He isn't able to risk. See, the danger is this. It's to have information that doesn't lead to trust. To have information in your life that does not lead you to trust more in God. Always be skeptical of information that undermines trust in God. Always be skeptical of information that undermines your relationship with God. I heard one of our deacons was say this one time, and and he's just a guy who so exemplifies the fear of God in his life. He said, the fear of God is the fear of at any point being willing to choose something that isn't God. I'm gonna say that again. The fear of God is the fear of that any point you may be willing to choose something that isn't God. So what is the fear of God? It means that you're supremely concerned with what God is supremely concerned with. So much so, you're willing to sacrifice dreams, choice, wealth, whatever you value in order to place more value on what he values. Just like the fear of man positioned Herod to love what men love, The fear of God repositions yourself to love what God loves. Proverbs 14, uh, verse 27 says this, The fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. The fear of the Lord, that fear, is actually a life-giving fountain. See, life comes from aligning myself correctly under God. That's where life is found. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this because the fear of man is just antithetical to the fear of God. It's the opposite of a life-giving fountain. The fear of man is simple insecurity. That's what it is. Um, Insecurity is the belief that your worth and value rests on the opinions of others. Ever been there? It's a deadly motivator. And I really don't think that you can be insecure and you can be effective in the kingdom. I don't think that it's possible. It's so antithetical to the goodness of God and will never result in the deep courage that it takes to look opposition to Christ in the face and choose to love rather than react in fear, anger, or violence. And the problem with the fear of man is that it will always conflict with the courage that the fear of God produces in ordinary people. Like, I think about ordinary people and what they've done when the fear of God has hit them. I I, I think of the disciples. Can you imagine the disciples if they had the fear of man on them? I, I mean, there's actually moments we see in the gospel stories where they do have the fear of man on them, and they're like, Uh, Communion, eating your body, drinking your blood, that's a tough teaching. Many desert him, right? But once they see the resurrected Christ, a glimpse of the resurrected Christ, an encounter with the resurrected King Jesus, oh, it puts the fear of God in you like never before and it produces courage and they end up turning the world upside down. The fear of man keeps the fear of God out because there's very little space for God's opinions in your life because the opinions of others have been so elevated. So the fear of man, it it causes you to pursue image. Image becomes more important to you than character and the real deal. Um, It's the pursuit of power. It's the pursuit of the appearance of virtue. Not necessarily virtue deep down, but just wanting people to know that you're a virtuous person. Um, The the, the pursuit of coolness. Is Is that person cool? Are you cool? Ultimately, others are on the throne. And when your purpose or your worth is on shaky ground like the opinions of others, then insecurity will always be the result. Plain and simple. The fear of God produces a dependence on God, like Peter had, that enabled him to be rescued from prison. It's the ultimate come what may attitude because you know what's coming. In the end, God wins. I really think that what God is doing in our church, and, and it's so funny we haven't been together in so long, but I just get this sense in the spirit that what he's doing is he's developing a kingdom thick skinnedness, if you will. You ever have your parent uh, when you're when you were growing up as a kid tell you, hey, you need to get a little thicker skin. You need to let that, that comment, that criticism just kind of roll off your back. Okay. Like my dad used to say, like water off a duck's back. You just gotta let it roll off your back. Get a little bit of a thick skin, Alex. Um, I think that what God is developing in us is he's developing a thick skinness. It doesn't mean we're not compassionate or caring or anything like that. It just means that we're able to see opposition, able to see criticism, uh, even on a cultural level and continue to walk in the truth and courage. And uh, I just want you to think about this for a second. I was I was thinking about, um, you know, is it possible to please everyone? Is it possible to tweet something that everybody agrees with I don't think it's possible. And so you're gonna have to decide who you're gonna disappoint. I could right now post on Twitter, um, God is cool. And hate would flow towards me and love would flow towards me. Oh man, retweet, that's amazing. God is cool, I think he's really cool. And then there'd be people who are like, God is not cool. I don't even believe in God, you're a crazy religious bigot. Now, I could also post on Twitter, uh, God is lame and hate would flow. How can you deny that God is is, is glorious and great? And, and you think he's lame? Oh my gosh. Um, and love would flow. Yeah, you're right, God is lame. He's a joke, doesn't exist, right? No matter how you live your life, you cannot please everyone. Don't try. No matter how you live your life, you will be hated by some, loved by others, and you cannot afford to play the game of approval ratings, especially if you know there is a call of the, of the call of the kingdom on your life. See, we need to develop a kingdom thick skin so that we can actually walk through criticism, have faith for things that our culture, like, no, what, like, we can't expect our culture to have faith for the impossible if they don't see it exemplified in the people of God, having faith for the impossible. We can't ha- expect our culture to think favorably of Christians if Christians are not primarily bringing heaven wherever they go. And so it actually begins with us saying, I have more faith, more fear of God in my life than fear of man. I can't, I can't listen to the haters. I can't listen to what the critics are saying. I have to take what I know to be true according to the scriptures, walk in authority, walk in courage, and you just watch. You will move mountains. You will see things happen that you never dreamed uh, you would see happen in your life. Now, I think the key to this kind of thick skin is actually, it actually comes from us placing honor on God. It actually comes from us honoring him correctly. So just a word on honor. Um, one of the things that we learned from this story, from this passage, is that the greatest injustice is for glorious King Jesus to not be recognized as he really is. Herod was given uh, an incredible ability to move a crowd. Uh, I don't doubt that there was a um, some kind of a skill there. There was even maybe a God-given anointing in that moment as a king over Israel uh, to speak well. He doesn't give glory to God, and so he dies. It is not right to live in a world where there is blessing and goodness all around us and God goes unrecognized. It's not right, and yet when something bad happens, he gets all the credit. You ever seen that? I mean, this is really the core of what is happening here. You have a group of people who through thankfulness, through prayer, right? There's that group of Christians praying for Peter. They see the impossible happen. Their friend miraculously released from an unjust sentence. And then we have a man who through praise of himself sees death happen. I really think, especially now, a thankful, God-honoring people, they're one of the rarest uh, groups of people in the world. It's one of the rarest attributes for a family or for a church. The power of gratitude is pretty amazing. We've talked so much about it at our church, and I think it's really a theme of Saints Hill, but it can change circumstances simply because it aligns with the correct view of God. So a thankful people actually usher into peace and joy those who were designed for it, but who have become caught up in the caustic nature of outrage. You, 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 it happens all the time. You'll see a group of people outraged, and then you will see people of faith who say, "No, no, no! I, I think we can think we can be thankful for this. <laughs> we can we can give honor for this." And just that attitude. It, it really can change an atmosphere. It really can change uh, circumstances. See, we are commanded in the scriptures to praise God. We're commanded to honor God. We're commanded to recognize God. Anytime there is some level of... Um, uh, gifting or ability or anointing it is on our shoulders to actually give God honor give him praise anytime we get see any kind of beauty or goodness or um, joy in life it is our job to actually get thankful um so but why why do, why are we commanded that why are we commanded to honor why are we commanded to praise is that like does God need that um I actually don't think so I think he just wants us to have life see God's commands in our life connect us to his covenant when we follow them. It's the following of a command that reminds us, that almost shocks us into the reality of the covenant that we have. We're loved before we behave, enjoyment of power, and enjoyment of his presence for all of our lives. And it's us following those his commands that actually remind us of that covenant. And then it's that covenant that connects us to encounter. Proverbs 14, 27, again, the fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. The only way that can be true is if his commands to fear him connect us to covenant, which connects us to encounter life-giving fountain. And this is the worldview of the first believer's gratitude leading to the impossible happening. I really think that we're entering a new season for Saints Hill and I wanna talk a little bit about it just to end. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I was sitting on my couch and just asking God, like I've been asking Him really for the past few months, like, what does the next three years uh, look like for Saints Hill? And uh, you know, I thought that it would come many months ago, uh, but I really didn't have much. I'm like, you know, I think what we're doing is good. I, I Going over, back to the values, we could, you know, talk about those any day. We could, you know, continue to ask ourselves, what does it look like for heaven to come to Newberg and uh, be obedient just in the interim? Um, But I just felt like God kind of highlighted two different things. And I think these two things are going to shape our church for the next three years at least. And hopefully they leave just a a mark on our church for all time. Uh, But I just felt the Lord say, I want you to focus on the fear of God and radical obedience. The fear of God and radical obedience. I said, okay, that's great. That's something I wanna focus on in my own life. What exactly is the goal? And he said this, I want to give integrity to revival. I want to give integrity to revival. You're pursuing revival, that's great. I wanna make sure that it's the real deal. See, integrity matters. You know, imagine um, you go to Fred Meyer and you buy a bunch of bananas. And every time you peel open one of the bananas, you find an orange inside. You would say this banana has no integrity on the outside. It appears to promise something on the inside that isn't actually there. And it's possible for churches, for movements to have the trappings of revival, the outward appearance of revival. There's healing, or they have prophetic words, or there's ecstatic worship. People are raising their hands. They're crying in worship. Um, And yet, for those same people to not access all of what God has because of hidden sin, And because of the fear of man or of other things that are not God. So I keep on hearing God, just this refrain in my mind, just him saying, Saints Hill is going to be the real deal. Saints Hill's revival is going to be the real deal. And I I really sense that what that will mean for Saints Hill is to focus on the fear of God. Um, And so we're going to talk for the next, you know, Stay tuned in our vision series coming in the fall. Uh, We're gonna talk more about that. Um, But the reality is this, is that the fear of God leads to repentance and repentance leads to power. And so if you want to unleash the power of God in a place, it comes from people doing deep repentance, Uh, personal repentance. What do you need to come to God and say, I've actually been out of line And I want to come back in line but also cultural repentance where have we as a culture been out of line from your heart and how do we repent and come back into line with your heart i don't want saints hill to have the trappings of revival without the real thing deep down and sometimes um, it's possible to use human techniques in order to bring about the opinions of others to think we're doing something amazing you see this all the time right now. You see, there's, um, and I, I, I don't know what the hearts of these other ministries are, but you can see other churches and, and everybody's online right now using media. And it's almost as if, if we just get our media better than the anointing comes, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, I, I don't want to pretend that we're something that we're not. The ugliest fear, this, this is the ugliest type of the fear of man because it sanctifies the fear of man. It uses what is God-given to posture in front of others, which is essentially prostituting God in order to get what we really want, which is the love of others. So I really think that you are gonna get hit with the fear of God, that I'm gonna get hit with the fear of God, and we're gonna do deep repentance as a church to the degree that God's power is poured out on us as a people, and we see things that we never dreamed that we'd see even in the next year. So I'm really excited about it. If you look at any past revival, they often begin with a sense of a holy God and a people who are either sinners and recognizing their utter wrongness before God and being made completely right in Christ, saints, or groups of saints who deeply saw their need to live saintly again. Uh, I see this pattern in revival. Um, There's an understanding or a rediscovery of God's goodness uh, and his holiness, then there's a sense of the fear of God that comes upon a group of people. And so there's confession of sin and personal renewal. There's internal cultures that begin to change. I think that we've begun to see some of that in our church. Then we see lifestyle changes and public convictions for righteousness and integrity. People taking stands at work and saying, I'm going to be this kind of person. Or evangelism breaking out and people sharing the goodness of God with others. Then there's power demonstration. There's healing and purity of mind and heart along with it and thus others begin to encounter God's goodness as well. And the revival just begins to grow and spread. Now, I don't know if that always works in that kind of cycle, but I do think that most revivals have these components. And I sense that a renewal of the fear of God is important for our church and for our town. The fear of God should produce in us an even more mind-blowing reality. The more that I understand his holiness and his power, his set-apartness, his otherness, the more I see what a radical thing I've been invited into. The more my mind is blown that you would share those attributes with me, make me completely pure, completely holy, completely washed in your blood. Oh God, let me live into that and let me walk in the same power that you say that I have because of the spirit. What if a town was marked by reverence for God There's just, oh wow, that town, there's an awe of God. So much so that it rubbed off onto every person that entered that town. They couldn't help get thankful. They're like, I'm so grateful for this experience I'm having here, who do I thank? And it's like, him. (laughs) Because there was such an awe hosted, such a reverence hosted, such a fear of God. I really believe that the fear of God will produce incredible levels of faith in our church because the fear of God recognizes that there's no option but God. So faith increases just like it increased for Peter and his friends. And I believe that no, that now more than ever, uh, we need people with faith to seed the world with hope. And we're gonna be those people. Saints Hill, you are people of faith. You are people with incredible faith. You believe for the impossible and you're gonna see the impossible happen. You will see Newburg become just an epicenter of revival for the rest of the nation, that I believe. The fear of God is not a stay put sort of fear. Like I fear God and so I I don't wanna step out of bounds so I'm not gonna take a step at all. No, no, no. The fear of God is a woe is me if I do not turn my world upside down with what I've been given. So I wanna pray for you. Uh, wherever you're at, stand up with me. Put your hand over your heart and let's all pray this out loud together. God, you are holy. You are set apart yet you have made yourself accessible. Thank you. Thank you for making me a saint and giving me your power to see heaven come. I don't wanna miss out on anything you have for me. I don't wanna live in fear of others. I want the fear of God to come upon me. Wake me up to you so I will live, amen.